This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Dr. Kay Gabrish on restoring the primacy of Christian identity in a polarized culture. Dr. Gabrish is an author, speaker, and Bible study leader at Park City's Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2022 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. K. Gabrish provides insights into restoring the primacy of Christian identity. Thank you all for coming. Um, Let me introduce myself to you. I'm Kay Gabrish. I, um, I teach at Park City's Pres in Dallas, and I do uh, a lot of women's retreats and conferences. And I decided at a late stage of life to go back to school, and so got my master's and doctorate. My doctoral program was a cohort in cultural apologetics, and uh, something that I was really interested in. And then over the last three and a half years, I've been researching um, this particular topic, Christian nationalism, and kind of have watched it grow and seen the effects that it is having on the church. And so I wanted to talk about that with you guys today. And I'm not going, I was just telling somebody, I'm not going to um, really go into the remedy, the solution. But you can read chapter five of my dissertation (laughs) if you want to know. But it's really, what I want you to see today is just how pervasive it is and what are some of the characteristics of it and how it is affecting the Church of Jesus Christ at varying levels and various levels of threat to the church. Um, For the research for this dissertation, I I spoke and interviewed uh, 10 pastors And so a lot of this is coming, you know, a lot of what I've learned is coming from their take on it, what they've witnessed in their churches, what they're experiencing in their churches. A lot of it is literature review from research that's going on. But let me just go ahead and get started. My husband and I recently watched, re-watched for the third or fourth time, a movie with Colin Firth that I love called The King's Speech. Most of you have probably seen it. It's the story of a particular aspect of the life of George VI, who was the king during World War II, the king of England during World War II, and the present queen, as you know, her father. And so the movie doesn't really, doesn't really focus on his life as this wartime king. It focuses instead on this relationship that he has with this Australian speech therapist named Lionel Logue. It's a biographical movie. 
And the way this man, Australian speech therapist, brings this, this birdie, as he's called, this king of England, out of his speech impediment that is such a hindrance in his life. I don't know if y'all know, some of you in here are old enough to know the story of, of George VI and how his older brother was the king, abdicated the throne so that he could marry an American divorced woman who at that time they would not allow. And so he abdicates the throne and Bertie becomes king very, very reluctantly because of the stuttering, the speech impediment. So the whole movie is Lionel trying to get the, get him to speak carefully and speak correctly because he's going to have to be making these powerful wartime speeches. And so as he asks him questions, every time he asks him about his childhood or where did this stammering come from, how did this start, he starts to stutter. Bertie starts to stutter. He cannot tell him anything about his childhood without stuttering. That's the trigger that brings on the stutter. And it's because his father was cruel and abusive to him and would deride him constantly. And so as Lionel drills down into this story, he realizes that Bertie needs to be re-narrated. He needs to get rid of that identity that he's still living in that creates this this stuttering issue for him because he's no longer under that bondage of that king, of that cruel king. He now is the king. He has been transported from that life. And so the whole story is about that. And it's a beautiful story. And when he gets to the end, he gives this beautiful speech on the night of his coronation. And he comes out having given a flawless speech to the nation. And he says to Lionel, I have found a voice And Lionel says, you're the bravest man I know, and you're going to be a great king. And he was, but he had to be transported out of that old identity. He had to stop living in that narrative and stop telling himself that story. And I tell you this because I want to situate what we're going to talk about today in Paul's letters to all of the Gentile churches, to all of the predominantly Gentile churches, and the way Paul always was re-narrating their stories. He would say to the Colossians, for example, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, you, you're not living in the kingdom of darkness anymore. You've been what? You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, and now you belong to the kingdom of God's beloved son. He would say to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, this is who you were when you walked in darkness, but now you're these people. See, we read Ephesians 2, and we see predestination. We see election. We see all these wonderful doctrines. But Paul was a rabbi. He's telling them a story. This is who you were, but now you're a part of God's people. Now you're, now you're here. Now you're these people. And so that's what is happening right now. This is the joy of our identity, y'all. This is what Paul is doing for us all through Scripture, is giving us back our primary identity, our allegiance to the king, to the one true king to whom we are to be loyal. And he orients this, everything in our lives, around that. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, because in America right now, and I'm just talking about American Christians today and what the Bible has to say about this phenomenon that has been taking over um, so much of American parlance lately and is so politically charged. And we're going to look at what scripture after scripture after scripture has to say about the characteristics of this particular movement and how it has become an internal threat to the church. Um, we, I have talked to pastors who tell me they have people in their churches who have 
irreconcilable differences now over, over politics and over ideologies and who can't have a normal conversation anymore. And so all of these people interviewed talked about the fact that there is a good patriotism. Patriotism is a good thing. C.S. Lewis talks about it. It's a love for a homeland. It's, a lo- it's Acts 17. It's a love for the place where God has put us and where he has nurtured us and, and expects us to steward it well. And that's what true patriotism is. But patriotism is not the same thing as Christian nationalism. And so when you hear that word over and over again, what a true patriot is, you think about that and you think about the biblical definition of what that is. And so what we're going to talk about is what nationalism is. First of all, it's very difficult to define. It is nationalism itself is a is a belief that there is a mutually distinct set of language, uh, ethnic uh, traits, religion, all kinds of things that will define a particular nation. You don't see a lot of those. You see it in um, in Islamic nations, you see it in Hungary, for example, where you have 95, more than 95% of the population are ethnic Hungary, Hungarians because there is no immigration there. And so you see it in those kinds of populations. So that's, that's the sort of loose definition of na- Christian nationalism, on the other hand, is to take that identity, that, that identity of the nation, and define that nation by Christianity. And so Christian nationalism is... is most easily defined by saying that it's, it's a movement, a collection of stories and narratives about America's past that says that we need to get back to that past and, and this needs to be a Christian nation and it, Christianity needs to be privileged in the public sphere. The problem is we are a pluralistic nation. We are not a Christian nation. We are a nation of many religions. We are a nation. And so Christians have been called to live in that nation. This is Acts 17. This is where God has placed you. And so our primary identity as Christians means that we live where God has placed us in a pluralistic nation like Christ, like Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. When I say it's hard to define, it's re- it really is, but it's one of those things that you know it when you see it. And you know, and you kind of know it when you hear it. And so I'll give you one example because this just came flying at me a couple of days ago. I had been kind of following the Faith and Freedom Coalition Conference in Nashville last week that took place last week. And I just happened to tune in when a former governor, by the way, a lot of the speakers at Faith and Freedom are uh, potential presidential candidates for 2024. And so I'm pretty sure this is one of them, but you know, not positive. But it's a former governor who said to this room full of Christians, it would be as if I, if I said this to you, and this is a direct quote, you people have no higher calling than to renew this world's hope in America. Okay, now that's a direct quote, and, you, and I'll be happy to tell you who it was later. I just don't want to say names here in, this, in the room, but this is a conflation you understand, of the mission of God's people. This was a room full of Christians. It got thunderous applause. Y'all, this is, this is confusion. This is, this is misdirection. This is mid, misguided thoughts about our real identity and our real highest calling. And it's happening all over our country right now. Here's the thing. The biblical narrative from start to finish, and you guys know this because you're teachers and pastors, the biblical narrative makes the highest calling of God's people very, very clear. 
It is to transcribe God's character to the world. It is to bless the world. It is to live in the world among the nations and to be the reflection of his character to such an extent that the world doesn't honor a specific nation. They don't even honor, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. Who do they honor Deuteronomy for? The God that these people serve. Who in the world is the God that these people serve? And that is what Christianity is. That is what primary identity is. But Christian nationalism says you want the world to honor America, and it's your job, Christians. Undergirding the whole biblical narrative is the fact that we will try to create other identities for ourselves. We do. They did it all the way through the Old Testament. And they do it all the way through the New. And we are still doing it today. And so that's why we're going to look at this today. Um, I'm going to talk really fast. If you want to just raise your hand, I'll slow down. Okay? Is that is that a problem? I, I, I am so sorry for that. It's just I have a lot to say. So the Bible has charted this way for us. So we're going to look at the Bible. I want to tell you a couple of... Um, We're going to first start with just a few characteristics of this. I want you to be able to identify it, okay? I am assuming that you have an interest in it, and I'm assuming, especially if you're a pastor, that you you probably have uh, some of it at some level in your church. But here is one of the characteristics. It is a... um, it is a manichaeistic belief that there is good and evil du- duking it out, dueling with each other all the time. And if you will notice when you listen to the news or you listen to the press, the word evil is thrown around a lot. We had a, uh, I'm from Texas. We had a mass shooting a few weeks ago in Texas, and I, I couldn't go three minutes on the news without hearing the word evil thrown around. But the word evil in the context that it's being used is that it's winning, that evil is winning. And so... And so we forget, you see, when we forget our primary identity, that we are citizens of this kingdom of God's beloved son, and evil cannot win because that battle has already been won. And so we live in the tension, yes, in its tension of that already and not yet, when he comes back to fully consummate that kingdom. But right now we're still living in his kingdom. And here is what Jesus is doing about all that evil. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and Matthew 28. He is enthroned, our Messiah King, right now in the midst of all that evil, in the midst of his enemies. And that is so clearly stated. And what does he do with it? He does four things. He directs it. He tells it where it goes and where it doesn't go. See also Joseph's brothers. See also everything in the Bible. He limits it. He restrains its influence and doesn't let it do as much as it would do if it had its way. In society, in a secular uh, illustration of that, you can think of the 3,000 people that died on 9-11 in the trade. Only 3,000 people died. He restrains it. He limits it. The third thing he does is he prevents it. He sometimes doesn't let it happen at all. He stops it cold in its tracks. And the fourth thing is that he permits it. He permits it, and then he uses it for his good and for his glory, and you know that. You know all of these things. But it's so easy for us to forget that he is ruling it and that it is all in his control because of why? Because of Matthew 28. Because he is the one with all authority. Satan has no kingdom of his own. He's a usurper and a parasite. And he will, until Jesus comes again, contest every square inch of that kingdom. 
But he, it is not his kingdom and he is not winning. So this is what's happening when we get so fearful that evil is winning and that evil is taking over. And that is a major characteristic of Christian nationalism. They want us to fear. They want us to live in fear that somebody else out there, the bad guys, are shaping our future and shaping our environment. Y'all, when you start to have that kind of alarm that other people are in charge of your life, that some political party that's in power is in charge of your life. When you start to have that alarm, it's terrifying, but it's completely false. If you go, my son's an ER doctor, if you go to the ER, he says he, get, he sees this a lot, with a panic attack, they will tell you, he will tell you, that the reality of what is happening with your body does not match what your feelings are. That's what a panic attack is. The panic attack among Christians today in America does not match Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Matthew 28, and a whole host of other passages that we could go to. That is the reality. That's what's actually happening right now as we sit here. And so this this fear thing that's going on, it makes us look like we have the most fragile identity of anyone in the country. When in reality, we have the most confident identity of anyone in the country, or we should. And so Christian nationalism presents this narrative of of fear and of of we're in trouble. And let me tell you what it does about about the nation itself. It presents a narrative called that some researchers, a couple of social scientists, have have labeled um, populist humiliation discourse. This nation, they say, is a disaster. It is, it is um, okay, bumper sticker in my kids live in Austin, one of them, and um, it is like the capital of the bumper sticker world. It's like you can see a car in Austin will have 25 bumper stickers on it. And so um, some of y'all may have cities like that. But, but I saw one a couple of years ago, and it said, well, two of them. It had two stickers. One of them was, what if the hokey pokey really is what it's all about? And the other one, I know, you have to think about them for a minute. Austin bumper stickers are really clever theology. And the other one said, where are we going and why am I in this (laughs) handbasket? Have y'all ever seen that? Okay, I love that one. Okay, that's, that's Christian nationalism. That's the dialogue. That's the narrative of what's happening in the world. We have, the, the whole country's going to hell in a handbasket. The whole world is. And we have to get back to our beginnings, back to our national beginnings. Okay, that, I'm going to tell you three things that are wrong with that. First of all, that is a prosperity gospel. That is saying if we will just return to whatever morality it is perceived that we had in the beginning, then God will bless us again. That morality was pretty shaky morality, okay? And the fact that I don't need to, that's another talk for another day, chattel slavery, but we, we don't, I don't know what it is we're supposed to get back to, but here's what that does. It conflates Christianity and it get with civic life and it gives America a transcendence that it never had. It takes, it makes us dependent on the morality of America and her past as our guide and what we're supposed to be looking to as our, as our spiritual guide instead of 
the eternal word of God that is not dependent on any nation's past, present, or future, or any stage in that nation that ever happened. Nations don't have morality. That's what God does for us with his word. That is our, that is our guide, and that is our distinction. And so it becomes an idol to get back to America's past, that we got to make it what it used to be. And that's a, a very clear characteristic of, of Christian nationalism. Here's the thing. All through the New Testament, the apostles never told the Christians in the first century that they needed to make their culture great, that they needed to depose the Roman emperor and get rid of him because he's bad for us, that they needed to challenge and, and have culture wars in every way. Y'all, they never had culture wars. They, never, they didn't wage culture wars. They didn't have any kind of entitlement mentality that, that told them that the culture was ever going to take their values, was ever going to believe the way that they believed. They had no idea that that was going to happen. They just were told to live in the culture as Christ. To be, which is why they were called that. Oh, look, they're little Christs. That's who they are. That was all they were ever told to be by the apostles and by the New Testament writers. They didn't lose culture wars because they didn't engage in them. They didn't boycott. Do y'all know that we boycott everything? As if we expect Walt Disney World to adhere to our Christian values. So we boycott. We boycott Target. We boycotted, I have a bunch of Christian friends who boycotted Chick-fil-A about four years ago because they were spending, I see some nods, they were spending their money in a way that did not measure up to what these Christians believed that they should be spending their money on. Y'all, they make great waffle fries. (laughs) They are not the hope of the world. That's ridiculous. And so we have to remember that if they're not then neither is the Oval Office, neither is a nation, neither is anything else that we are putting our our hopes and dreams in. Y'all, this nation will fail a, a million times like it always has to meet your expectations of a life of flourishing. The kingdom of God never will. It never will. And we have to understand the difference in those two things. And so... You, you can go back to Jesus. You can go back to b- before the apostles started writing when James and John say to him, can we sit on your left and your right when you come into your kingdom? They were all about political power. That was the whole idea behind that question. And what did he say? He said, no, you guys don't understand. That's, I know you want to deal with things in a political powerful way. I know you think that's the answer, but that's not how we're going to roll here. That's not what I came for. We are ruled as a kingdom. We are ruled from heaven. We don't play by the world's games. We don't play by their rules. And y'all, when the church did, and when it does, it is always compromised. It is always compromised because it will become loyal and show its allegiance to agendas that are very un-Christian that are moving in an ungospel direction, a non-gospel direction. And so that's what's happened. So how then? If it wasn't power, what was it that drove that train for 2,000 years that took over the world? How, what was it? It was love. It was Christian love. It was exactly what Jesus said it was going to be. He said, this is how they're going to know you. This is how they're going to respond. And so you saw it all. You know the stories of the plagues in the Roman Empire, especially the two major plagues when the people with means would leave town, would get out of there, and the Christians would stay. 
And they would take care of the poor and the sick and the marginalized. You know those stories. You know probably about Julian, the emperor, who tried to mimic what the Christians did by setting up charities. It's like setting up social safety nets today through the government. Nothing mimics it. Why? Because there's no theological framework for it. It's loving your neighbor. It's loving and taking care of people. Okay, right now we are on the verge of overturning Roe v. Wade, which has been in effect since 1973, so for almost 50 years. Do you know that during that time, aside from a slight peak and right after it was passed, abortion rates have gone steadily down? Down so far, just step through every administration, Republican and Democrat, down so far. Right now, they are the lowest they have been since right before Road v. Wade became law. Legislation made it easier for women to get abortions. Why did the rates go down? Christian love. You can, you can do all the research in the world. Christians setting up crisis pregnancy centers. Christians adopting babies and promoting adoption as, as an alternative. Christians loving on women who were pregnant. The other, the unwed mother, the woman that Jesus would associate with. And that's the thing about him. When he was here, and that's the difference in, in us and him, that's the difference. When he was here, he was constantly in the culture. He was out there among them. He was never once repulsed or frantic or anxious or fearful about anything he saw. There was nothing in the culture that repulsed him. There was nothing that made him angry. You know what got his blood pressure up? The religious leaders, the guys in the church, the guys who were so busy exaggerating and amplifying the evil that was out there that they couldn't see their own sins and their rejection of their own Savior, their own Messiah. That's what made him mad. The culture never did. He loved the culture. He went out there and lived in it. And so this, that's just, that's some of the characteristics of of Christian nationalism. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the one that is doing the most damage, and you probably already know it, but the one that is doing the most damage is the identity that is being formed by social media. Nothing has done more to hurt this country and to polarize this country. Nothing, no institution, has done more to fracture society and the church than social media because of information illiteracy, because of the fact that we take in nonsense so much of the time. There's a, my son grew up loving the far side. Patrick, you probably did too. And so he loved Gary Larson's cartoons and he had them all over his room on the walls. And one of my favorite ones was this picture of these two dogs and these two cars had pulled up at a red light and there's these big golden retrievers, one hanging out the back window of one car and one hanging out the back window of the other car. And they're talking to each other while the cars are parked at the red light. And one big slobbery dog says to the other one, what are y'all doing? The other one says, we're running errands. And when we get done, she's going to take me to the vet to get tutored. (laughs) It was always always a great favorite of mine, but I never, you know, really knew why until this particular topic came up. It is a, it is a, is a willingness to, to take that information that's coming in and rather than do what Paul says in Romans 12 and, and test it, 
we just take this non-credentialed information in and it just gets more bizarre by the day. And it causes this division and this polarization. It's a failure to think critically. It's information illiteracy. And it should not be among Christians because the Bible is just, there's a preponderance of information in the Bible telling us how bad that is for us. And I'll give you some scriptures in a minute. The first one's Colossians 2.8. When Paul says to this Colossian church, who are, we're in the same situation we're in, see to it that no one takes you captive by hollow, deceptive philosophies. Why is he warning them about that? Because in the story of the Bible, there's not just Roman emperors. There's not just men. There are evil, Paul says, principalities. There are spiritual creatures that have influence over the things going on in the world. And he calls them rulers of the air, powers, principalities. And he says, they, Colossians, are influencing what you're hearing. And so they're going to take you captive, Christians. They're going to take you captive with the things they're telling you if you're spending 20 to 25 hours a week on social media and cable news. And every pastor I talked to said, okay, we can't disentangle in a 30-minute sermon on Sunday what they have been ingesting all week long for 20 to 30 hours. That is, that is a great disadvantage. And so it is up to us as Christians to take that upon ourselves and to know what kind of influence that has on us. And so what is happening, what, what Paul goes on to say, well, and Jesus in, the, in um, John 8, and he, he links the lies that are thrown at us with the devil himself. He says that so much of his teaching, that dominant theme running through John is, truth and lies. And so he calls the devil the ruler of this world, and he says he was the father of lies from the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the story. The beginning of the story in Genesis 3. He comes into the garden, and so Jesus roots it there as he's telling the Pharisees who the devil really is. And he said he roots it there. And so what is it that he comes in with when he comes in to Eve? He doesn't bring a bunch of demons. He doesn't bring a lightning bolt. He doesn't bring hard power. He brings soft power, an idea. He infiltrates her mind with an idea. You know this. You've taught this a million times. He talks to her and plants ideas in her mind because that is his primary strategy to drive God's image bearers to devastation. That is what he uses. He puts ideas that play to our disordered desires in our minds. And so what does he say? He gives her the idea that God is not to be trusted. Y'all, that is one of the most foundational implications of Christian nationalism. That God is not to be trusted. Christians, God is not to be trusted. So we need to get creative here. And we need to elect this guy or that guy or whatever. And we need to make sure that we take care of these enemies out there. Okay, and so that is, that is the idea maker on social media. He is there, and he is there to sow discord and chaos. We have a, country, a company in this country y'all called, that you're very familiar with called Twitter that Elon Musk was willing to pay $40 billion for. It has one function. It doesn't make anything. It doesn't do anything. It just provides a platform for people to vent their rage and argue with total strangers. That's where we are now. 
That's the, that's the discord that has been sown that Paul is talking about. That's the ideas that keep us captive. And so again and again, the Bible exhorts us not to fall for it. He has told us what is good. He has shown us what is good. I will never get through all of this, but we're going to try. Here's how, here's what, how it works. I'm going to give you, <laughs> thank you. I'm going to give you a couple of things. We have a propensity. This is research. These are the things that have been, that they have been, these social scientists have been studying for years for confirmation bias. We want, we will search out those people that agree with us and not talk to those who don't. We will search out the most absurd beliefs and conspiracies if they agree with something that we have already endorsed. We have a propensity to want to be on a team. And so they have this, the sowers of discord have taken that once you're on that team, once those group members begin to think alike, there's a cascade effect that, that, go, that takes you to further extremes on that team than you would have ever gone by yourself. See also the Capitol riots. There are, there is suspicion of anyone who is the other, who is, the, who is an outside person. There's a phrase coined by Susan Harding an author who calls, she says it's the repugnant other, the repugnant cultural other. She says we all have one. And it's fueled by this culture of outrage. Do y'all know that just a decade ago, the social media and the internet and social media in particular were being online collaborative communities? We actually were using it to collaborate on ideas. It is not used for anything now except to foment rage and discord and chaos and diminish any prospect of getting along because you're always outraged at the other. The amplification of rage was evident when the guy quit Twitter who was the head of the team that invented the retweet button. And he said he could not live with himself after he had done it because he did not realize how it would amplify the viciousness. He said it was like putting, this is a quote, it's like putting a loaded gun into the hands of a four-year-old because there's no critical thinking involved, not for the like button, the retweet button. There's no critical thinking. You're not testing, as Paul said. You're not thinking it through. You're not saying when you're on that, that site, how does this square with what God has said? It's just hit that button. And so it has amplified the rage. And there are Christian blogs that are absolute clearinghouses for doing this, for for creating this rage and fear, multiplying fear. And I'm going to say one more thing about that. First, I want to tell you about my... So I have a six-year-old grandson who, when he was three and could just barely talk, had put a plastic cleaning bag over his head. And he walked into the kitchen quite proud, and he had this bag over his head. And my son-in-law, Jay Marty, said, screamed and, you know, went crazy and jerked it off his head and said, Jim, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. That will kill you. You will die. Jay Marty has a tendency to tell him the worst. You know, it's like, it's like uh, psychological terrorism. <laughs> it's like, this is what's going to happen to you. And so he tells him, you will die. That will kill you. And so... Portal JM, he says, okay, you know, and so he goes, walks into the bathroom, leaves the kitchen, walks in the bathroom, sees his mom, my daughter, standing there getting ready to take a shower. She's got a towel wrapped around her and she's got all of her, she's got long hair, she's got all of her hair piled on top of her head and she's putting on a plastic shower cap. And he says, mommy, take that off your head. It is very scary. You will die. 
And we, I love that story because it's such a, it's such an example of what what fear can do, what um, what that psychological terror can do, and so that's what's happening right now. And y'all, there are people that are absolute experts at it. Now, they, I'm not okay. Please don't ask me later. That you, you can ask me anything you want, but really don't ask me why didn't I take on the left? I'm not taking on the left because I'm talking to Christians today, and I'm talking about our issues, okay? They, on the far left, you have, don't hear, hear me say this, you have wings on the extremes of these two cultural phenomena that are going on right now. What happens, though, with us, with Christians, is that we sometimes think there's just one that's destroying the church. There's just one bad set. There are two crazies, two crazy wings right now. And then there's this exhausted, silent majority in the middle, like I presume you guys are, and I know I am, that are just sick of it all. And so I'm not taking on the left right now or today. So so you can talk about that if you want to, but here's why I prefaced what I'm about to say. We have people in the conservative movement who are absolute geniuses at stirring up this rage and chaos. And one of them's name, and I will say this one's name, because he's very, very unashamedly proud of what he does. And his name is Christopher Rufo. And he is a conservative political activist. And about a year and a little more than a year and a half ago, he, in the spring of 21, he came across a phrase from some Harvard law students back in, law professors, excuse me, back in the 80s, so a 40-something-year-old phrase called critical race theory. And it's a, it's a, it's a theory about, and we're not going to go into it because we don't have time about what it's about, but it would be great if Christians actually knew what it was about before they talked about it all the time. But he thought that that would make, now I want you to know Christopher Rufo has never uttered a word about God. Never, never said a thing about being a Christian, but he is a conservative activist who knows how to push Christians' buttons. And so he brought this phrase into the vernacular, and he began to write articles about it, and he began to uh, put things online about it. And he said in an interview with Benjamin Wells Wallace recently, about six months ago, he said in this interview when Wallace was asking him, how did you come up with that, and how is it that People are screaming at each other in school board meetings right now, and they don't. And half of them don't know what the word even means. He said this. He said conservatives just get engaged in culture wars, especially Christians. And I needed some new language for them. Political correctness is dated. Cancel culture is just vacuous. Woke is too broad. I wanted this because it's the perfect villain and a sufficiently political weapon that would make them sick. And then he goes on and on and on. He is a theatrical conservative activist, and this is how he's done it. And we fall for it. And then on September 21st of last year, he made an appearance on Tucker Carlson tonight and very slowly and elaborately said, isn't it amazing how critical race theory has completely infiltrated all of our institutions and education and all our government? And Tucker Carlson said, no, I didn't know that. Tell me a little bit more about it. So this is how it spreads. This is how gullible Christians can be. This is what we can do when we listen to everything that comes down the pike. And what is that? What are we told? What does Paul say to Timothy right before he dies? What are the instructions he gives to him before he dies? He says, Timothy, you're going to have people who love to stir up dissension. You're going to have people who love 
to create chaos. You're going to have people who slander all of the time. These people are losing. Basically what he's saying, these people are not in their right minds because they have not allowed truth to penetrate their minds. Watch them, Timothy. Take care of them. Don't let them destroy the church. That was one of the main things Paul said to Timothy who would succeed him, was don't let these kinds of things destroy the church. I want to just tell you one last thing about that, and then I want to tell you what Jesus says in the Gospels. Um, One of the pastors I interviewed said something to me that was so amazing when I asked him about this polarization and how it was affecting his particular church. He said, what we are doing as Christians and as pastors and teachers is that we are failing to teach our people a biblical anthropology. And I thought that was so fascinating. He said, it is so much easier to tell our children, for example, that there are just evil people out there, Darwinian people who are just evil and they want to do you, they want to do you bad, bad things to you and they want to create harm for you. He said the truth is, the biblical anthropology is, there are, there are many things true of it, but the three things that he said we need to be teaching our children is that these people out there that are the other are made in the image of God. They are image bearers of God. That is true of them. The second thing is they have conscience written on their hearts. That is true of them. The third thing is they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is true of them. And so what does Scripture tell us? There is a way that seems right to a man. And so we tell our kids they're evil. They want to kill you. They want to harm you. No, there is really a way that seems right to them. But in the end, it leads to what? To death. But our kids go off to school, and they meet these people, and they don't have a category for them because they really like them. They're really nice people, and they want to bring them home for Thanksgiving. And they're trying to figure out what to do with all this because, you know, Mom, they're really not evil, not, not like you mean it, and, and I don't think they want to kill me. And so we have, we have to stick with this scripture. We have to, to teach what the Bible actually says to us. And finally, Jesus came to do the exact same thing that we're talking about today. He came to keep the people, to regenerate them, to restore the kingdom of God, making a visible kingdom of God. And he had to re-narrate them when he did because they had lived under Roman oppression for so long and they had such an idea of what their Messiah was going to be and who, what he was going to perform for them politically that they actually, he spent his whole time telling them, no, that's not who I am. No, that's not how I roll. No, that's not what we're going to do. And so the great sin of not really understanding who he was goes all the way through the Gospels and, and into the first century church when Paul says to the Corinthians, you put up readily with all kinds of stories about who Jesus is, and they're not true. They're not true at all. And so what is happening now, this is another characteristic of Christian nationalism, is that we think, and not and by we I mean Christians who have succumbed to this movement, that there has to be this pugilistic authoritarian leader who is a John Wayne type of character, an ideal rugged masculine man, that we can amplify the valor of this person who will fight our battles for us. Y'all, that is the complete opposite of what Jesus said and is the complete opposite of what Paul taught the church when he told the Philippians, no, you must act in humility in the same way that the one who emptied himself of power did. 
And so it's antithetical. It's, it, the reality is that it's antithetical to everything. And so biblically, a healthy Christian community will honor those whom God esteems. And there is no way that we can paint any other picture of that because that is what the, the scriptures tell us. And so, and I will tell you um, that what has been attempted is the legitimization of many political characters in our, in our country right now. I'm not zeroing in on anybody. The legitimization of that corrupt person and immoral person by, to frame him by placing him whom, or her into a biblical story. Well, that's not how King David was. He was a warrior. Okay, the entire Old Testament is written in epidictic rhetoric, except for the wisdom books. God places his characters in those stories by what is called epidictic rhetoric. He gives you the character and the story and how that person played his role on the stage of God's story as it unfolds, what his actions were. Did he play his role by his actions? Could, you, could he play that role out that God had given him to do? What was David? He was the warrior king. He was, that was his role. And what else was he? He was a man after God's own heart. We have no, there is absolutely no way to, to, to say that any other way. And so you, there's no way to frame a political candidate and put him into any category of any person in God's scriptures in the Old Testament without taking the context of that story and seeing what was that role, what were the actions, how was that role fitting into the larger story of God's idealized society that he was spiritually forming his people with. They did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They did not have Paul writing them letters. God used the stories, the narratives of the Old Testament, and he formed, spiritually formed his people like that. That's why you read the book of Judges and you want to throw up. By the time you get to the end of it, it's like, this is the worst thing I've ever read. You turn the page and God says, okay, now, Now here's Boaz and here's Ruth and this is how we're going to be spiritually formed because we're going to see how people play their roles on God's stage, how they pick up the script and they put on the costume and they play their roles in love and morality and and always using their resources for the good of everyone else. And so Jesus does this all through one-third of his teaching time. He spends on parables to get people to reimagine. I just um, love this one. I'm not going to teach you the parable of the Good Samaritan because you know it. But he gets people to reimagine what it is they're supposed to do. And he uses this mirror window analogy as he teaches. Look out the window with me, and I'm going to tell you a story. He's the only one in the New Testament that does it. In the Old Testament, lots of people tell parables. Nathan is probably the most famous one that you know when he comes to David and says, David, I want to tell you a story about a man. How do you? You know the story. Okay. He engages them in the story. And so Jesus says, look out the window. I'm going to tell you a story. I want you to see how this person relates to the world, to his neighbors, to the other people, and to God. And then he tells the story. And then he zooms in, slams the window shut, and zooms in with the mirror and says, do you see yourself in that story? And he does it every time he tells a parable involving people. And so when he tells the Good Samaritan's parable, this lawyer is, is asking questions. And, he's, and so Jesus says, you know, I, I can see that you want to assess your boundaries here. 
How, how do I get saved? Well, what is the greatest commandment? Well, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? Y'all, your kids do this all the time. Well, how many more bites do I have to eat? Well, how many more minutes does he get the ball? Uh, it's my turn now. So it's, he, they are always pushing him to assess boundaries. And he says, let me tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story that's going to show you as you look out the window at what happened here when the two religious guys went to the other side of the street and the one guy that kept, that took care of the poor beat up guy on the side of the road was a guy that you cannot stand to you. He's the repugnant other, the Samaritan. And he is the one who takes care of him. Why? Because he is doing his duty as a human being. That is the obligation that we have. That's what we owe each other. And that's what Christian nationalism as a movement is trying very hard to negate. No, we don't owe anybody anything. We have absolute rights and we don't, we don't owe any. We have a lot of people screaming today on both sides of the aisle about their individual rights and their constitutional rights. And this is absolutely an aside, but I just, you have to know this. The framers of our founding documents had one idea in mind about inalienable rights. They assumed, because they were getting them from ancient Greek philosophy, they assumed that those rights, along with those rights, would come, what? Absolutely. Personal responsibility and obligation. They never dreamed that that would be interpreted as, these are my rights and I don't owe anybody anything. And that is exactly what is happening. That's what Jesus is talking about here. They always viewed them as inextricably linked with that. Why? Because that document says, for the general welfare of the country for the common good, for the general welfare, for your neighbor. And so that, that was, was always most assuredly defined the limitations of those rights. Was it for the general welfare? There has never been any such thing as unlimited individual rights. Now, you know that, right? You know that biblically. God always assumes that it's going to come with responsibility and duty. And so that's all these parables are. Y'all, he's giving the man a choice. He's giving them a choice by showing them the story of the Samaritan and saying those two religious guys had a choice to make and they chose to go to the other side because they don't owe anybody anything. But the Samaritan, the repugnant other, chose to do his duty, to do his obligation. And so he's, y'all, the, the Christian life of discipleship is like one giant would-you-rather game. Would you rather take the choice that Jesus would make and do it his way, or would you rather do it your way? And so they give us these norms of the kingdom life. Is it hard to live like Jesus? It is so hard it is so hard. I gave a talk very similar to this about a week ago, and this woman, I told Patrick this, this woman said, yes, but this is really hard when Joe Biden is president. And I was like, did you hear anything I said? Okay, yes, it's hard. He's not, he doesn't, you know, he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Every religion has a form of that command, but it's always in the negative. Don't do to others. No, he doesn't go there. He doesn't ever give you a no harm, no foul kind of thing. It's always, no, you're going to be proactive with your righteousness. You're actually going to do what God is demanding of you. And it is the entirety of it. And so he tells them these parables. And then it's kind of like, he says, do you agree with me? And they go, we agree with you. That's what the man says at the end of the parable. Yeah. The one who showed him mercy. He was like, agreement is not obedience. Agreement is not turning into Christ. Agreement is not growing in, in, in Jesus. It is, it is not. And so he gives him these choice, and then he, he is 
trying, he is attempting to form character. And those who listened in the parables, those who had ears to hear. <laughs> I told y'all I would do something like that. I'm so glad that by now we know each other and y'all are like, I think she's a little wacky, but okay. Those who had ears to hear then would say, I'll follow you. Yeah, I'll leave my family. Yeah, I'll go with you. Yeah, I'll do whatever, whatever it is you want. Because after all, to whom else would we go? You're our primary identity. And so the last thing I want to tell you about our young people, and then I'm going to close with a story about my daughter, is um, a fast one, though is that we're hemorrhaging young people from the evangelical church right now. And I've worked with young people all my life. That was my business that I won't go into. But there's compelling data from people who know Robert Putnam, uh, David Campbell, countless sociologists and demographers who study these things, who tell us that this conflation of Christianity and nationalism is a key driver in our young people leaving the church. They, it's not that they don't believe what Jesus says, it's that they think we don't believe it because they're not seeing it acted out in, their, in the Christians' lives that they know. And so one of the pastors said to me, he said, you know, the good news, though, is the tomb is empty. It is, in fact, empty, he said. And he said, and Jesus is alive and seated in heaven, ruling until he comes. But until that happens, he said, a lot of young people are going to conclude that the gospel is just one more aspect of political theater And he says, okay, they'll be wrong. But as Jesus put it, woe to the person through whom that stumbling block comes. And that's Christian nationalism, y'all. More like Jesus so that we can fulfill our highest calling. That is what we are to do. That is our identity. That is our highest calling. And so John in Revelation 5 through 6 is told to look for the lion. And he turns and he sees instead what? A lamb. He sees these two completely diametrically opposed excellencies. He sees this courage of a lion and he sees this and he sees this lamb instead who has been crucified because all of these characteristics meet. This is Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon. All of these characteristics meet in Jesus. These mutually exclusive, contradictory characteristics are perfectly integrated in Jesus. And as we become more like him, as we grow in him, as we put aside these other identities and as we, and as we learn to filter truth and, and lies and all of those things, then we will grow too in that way. I'm, I'm going to close with this story. My daughter's adopted, and when she was born, we had a six-year-old son. And the adoption agency that we went through said that you could, um, if your child, your elder sibling was old enough, they could be the ones to go in and get the baby and bring the baby out and present the baby to the parents. And so we had waited for this baby girl for so long. And so our little boy was six and he went back in the room and I had her pictured in my mind. I just, I knew what she was going to look like. She was just going to be beautiful. She was going to look like us. She was just going to be this beautiful baby, and we were so excited. He brings her out, and she had had a very, very difficult forceps delivery three days earlier or five days earlier, and she had, they had damaged the nerves in her face on the left side. And her little cheek was all messed up, and her lip hung down, and she had gotten an infection, and they had had to shave this side of her head, and she had a whole bunch of black spiky hair that stood up all over. And so there was this one big spot where the 
IV had gone in. So she had this lip, she had this face, she had this hair, she had this ball spot, and I, I looked at her and I was like, whoa, okay, and that was not what I pictured at all, but he held her out and he said, with his little six-year-old arms, isn't she pretty? Doesn't she look just like me? That has been our gospel story her entire life, her 39 years of life on this earth. It is such a picture of what he does. Our elder brother, he holds us out to the father and says, aren't they pretty? Don't they look just like me? And we don't. (laughs) But he spends our life making that happen. And so Sinclair Ferguson adds to my story, and he says, yes, and one day Jesus will say, here am I and the children you have given me. And God the Father will say, I would have known them anywhere. They look just like you. That's our highest calling. That's our primary identity. Thank you all so much for being such a great audience. I really love it. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.